0: Well, welcome to the first Sunday in the last month of 2009. Can you believe that? Did anybody else experience just the evaporation of an entire year right before their eyes? Wow, this has been fast. Well, you know, one of the things that the end of the year affords us an opportunity to do is to reflect a little bit and do some... Examination in our lives and that can be a very healthy thing. How many know it can be a very depressing thing as well, you know Some of us don't reflect because we don't want to (laughs) know I don't want to know what I was like in some categories over the past year, but Each of us in multiple categories of our lives are coming to sort of a fork in the road Constantly and we're having to make decisions. Which way am I going to go with this? Which way am I going to go in my role as a husband or a father? Which way am I going to go in my Bible reading and study? Which way am I going to go in serving dynamics? Which way am I going to go in diligence at the office? We're having to make decisions about that all the time. You know, as I pondered that a little bit, that famous Robert Frost poem came to mind, Road Not Taken. Here, listen to this. It's philosophically intriguing and literarily confusing. But I didn't like poems when I was in school, but this one's kind of cool. But it is one of those things that you wonder, how did that teacher come up with that interpretation? You remember that? And they say it like they're absolutely right. You want to call people back from the dead and say, can you verify what she just said? Because I don't think it's right. But anyway, here's here's Robert Frost's interesting reflection. He says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. That's a profound little line there. There are certain paths. Be careful that you choose to walk them because you may not depart from them in the future. But his last line here stands there. He says, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. See, the reality of our lives is we are choosing paths that will make a difference in our lives. And we will look back on them, and we will recall, I made a choice right there. And it's made a difference in my life. Now, a difference is an open word, right? A difference for good or a difference for trouble and setback in our lives. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to consider the road that we have been on in 2009 as we come to the end here. And this would be a healthy thing to do in a number of categories. But I want to carefully warn us. That when we do some form of of self-examination and we consider the road that we've been on, we consider the manner of our walk, let me tell you what we're not trying to do. It is we're not trying to figure out whether the choices that we made and the life that we lived over this past year somehow are good enough to qualify us for God's involvement in our lives. We're not trying to look back over the past year and walk away convinced that we did enough so that our thought about going to heaven one day is still a pretty good thought. I I feel pretty secure about that. See, Because if you're not clear on that, reviewing the past is going to immediately put you in the crosshairs of condemnation. And that's why many people don't go there. They don't go there because theologically they don't have the roots to go there. And that's unfortunate because we should be able. The Bible tells us, examine yourselves. The prophets in the Old Testament often would tell the people, consider your ways. So what we don't want to be doing is continuing down a path. You know, The world continues down a path powerless to change that path without the grace of God. But the people of God have been given a means of getting off the path. I'm on the wrong path in any area of my life. I have the power of the Holy Spirit present in my life and I have the revelation of God, a growing revelation of God that, that I could get off the path. I don't need to stay on the path. But if I never consider the path I'm on, well, then I'm more likely just to stay on it out of default. Now, here's the, here's the real deal. In the Christian life, you're going to come to a place in your walk, in all kinds of categories, where two paths divert. And one of them will be attractive to you for a different set of reasons. In our lives, there are paths that are available to us that are attractive because they appear easier, less complicated. I know more the details about what happens over there. I've walked a path that looked just like that for 10 years in my life. I think I can walk that one. And then there's other direction, forks in the road, another path that's less familiar it's less known. It looks more challenging. It requires risk and faith. And sometimes in that moment, by default, if my flesh is ruling the day, I want the easier path. The problem with the easier path, and, and listen, the easier path doesn't mean that... And I'm not talking about getting to heaven here. These are not pathways that one leads to hell, one leads to heaven. I'm talking about believers who are going to heaven because of the work and person of Christ on their behalf, face opportunities and how they're going to live their lives. That's why Paul says, just walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You have the calling already. So we're not debating here this morning whether you're choosing a path that will lead you to hell. If you're a believer, you're on your way to the presence of God. But you may get there differently. One path may involve... As little challenge and difficulty as you can humanly make it involve. It doesn't involve great stories about the glory of God. There's no vistas that take place where God gets revealed in an amazing way because it's just sort of this safe, predictable, non-challenging. The flesh can walk it out. I don't need an outbreak of the Spirit of God. And then there's a pathway that involves challenge and faith. And getting a hold of God and gasping spiritually for air and feeling like, how does this happen? How do I do this? But it is enormous in declaring the glory of God because you're way in over your head. Frequently. Depending upon God. Calling upon God. And you take this path, not because you know everything that will happen, because you know God. And He will meet you on that path and He will blow your mind and how He comes through on this path that you don't and don't know how to predict what will happen now listen this morning this principle is true in many categories i'm just choosing to focus it in on money and how we handle our money you know and what path we're walking in the pattern of giving you know are we choosing a path that honors god in the way in which we give now let me let me give a little bit of a disclaimer here because, you know, as the church has grown, uh, there, is a, there is a huge variety of folks here. There are people here who have been in the kingdom of God for many, many years. They know the Bible. They practice things. They've walked in things. They've walked this path. There are some who have been in the church for many, many years who have not walked that path. They're scared to death to walk that path when it comes to their finances. May walk it in a few other categories, but not when it comes to money. There are some here. Who are new to the kingdom of God. And you know, the whole subject of money is just kind of a little bit of a foreign thing. It's not something they've given a lot of consideration to. There's some here this morning that the mere fact that a pastor would preach on money is, is a disturbing thing for some. Right? I mean, hey, there's welcome to the Christian world. There's some bizarre stuff out there. and you, Maybe you've been a part of something like that, that money was handled inappropriately. But let me just say by way of, should we discuss this this morning? Should we get real about how we're spending our bucks? Well, your determination of that question should come from, Hey dude, you ought to be preaching and sounding and emphasizing what the Bible preaches like, sounds like, and emphasizes like. So if the Bible never talks about money, you shouldn't talk about money. But if the Bible does talk about money, you'd better talk about money. So if you find that we haven't talked about money in a while, you should be bothered by that. If the Bible says a lot about something, you should hope that we're saying a lot about it too. All right, this quote from Richard Halverson is very helpful. It says, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing. Because when it comes to a man's real nature... Money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. See, there's an aspect of our life that is revealed and discovered by us when we examine how money operates in us. And if you avoid that subject, you avoid knowing yourself. Because money is a huge deal. It's why some people don't want it to be discussed. You know, talk about something that doesn't mess with my world so much. But the second we said, we're going to talk about money this morning. We're messing with our worlds, aren't we? But that's a good thing. God wants to mess with our worlds. So no apology for this subject. My only apology is I went back and and, and looked at some of my notes, uh, I don't know that I've really preached significantly on money since I did the Malachi Challenge messages, and that was back in February of 2006. So say it's been four years since a significant series on giving. Some of you guys ought to have a problem with that. Let me know that. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do three scriptural examples of giving. And I want us to view these examples through the lens of God's perspective how these stories reveal God's word and God's will, and, and then I want us to look at them through the human perspective. What's going on in these people's lives as money is interacting with them and they're giving and having to walk through these dynamics of their lives? Good, bad? what's happening here? Turn first with me to Genesis chapter 28, all the way in the beginning. Genesis 28. I'm going to learn something about giving from a man named Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is the third famous patriarch that God chooses to identify himself by. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here we have Jacob venturing away from home due to some... Difficult circumstances in his life. Jacob was a man who seemed to create difficult circumstances in his life. Some of you can identify with that. And he's leaving home here and he's going to have an encounter with God. And we're going to discover how he responds in the pattern of giving. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head And set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow. Saying, if God will be with me, will keep me in this way that I go. And will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. The Lord shall be my God And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, I'm going to get back to Jacob in just a second. But something's being revealed here in this story about the will of God and the purpose of God. And what is to be known about God in what Jacob does here. But we come across this term here. What a response, right? God shows up in an amazing way in Jacob's life. Jacob's response is to vow that from now on, I'm going to give a tenth, God, to you of all that you provide to me. Well, where's this idea come from? Well, this is what we call the tithe. When you hear that terminology, the tithe, uh, tithe is not a Latin phrase for giving to a church. So when someone says, do you tithe? That doesn't mean do you give to the church? That's not what that means. It's it's not the correct use of the word. The word tithe is the word tenth to tithe is to give a tenth. And so we get we discover in the Bible there's this practice of giving a tenth of all that God brings into a person's life, giving it back to God in honor of him. And that's called a tithe. Now, I want to highlight something here as we. Discover this tithe in the Bible. Is that this tithe is both something that is an understood pattern in Scripture, and then it becomes an instituted pattern in Scripture. And that's very important for you to see both, because this tithe, Jacob somehow he doesn't have a manual. He's not following the, You know, the, the Mount Sinai hasn't occurred yet. There's no codified law anywhere written down for man to be following. Jacob knows something in his heart that when God shows up in his life, the response to God is to honor him in a certain way, to honor him with a tenth of what God would bring into his life. Now, later on, God's going to explain all this stuff to us in the law. He's not going to introduce it to us. He's going to explain it and clarify some things about the tithe. Right. Leviticus 2730 says every tithe. Of the land. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now, what's important there is just simply a statement. God is saying, a tithe, 10% of everything is mine. Before it's yours, It's mine. As a matter of fact, for God, everything is his. But God has established something in the heart of man that God doesn't require us to give everything back to him. God gives to us to make use in our life, to meet needs in our life, to enjoy in our lives. But God is, if you will, the owner of it all. And so there's a revelation in the tithe that basically says, when I give 10% back to God, it's kind of like paying rent in a way. It's that which is due to the owner. The air I breathe, the water that falls from the sky and waters the ground, and mysteriously those seeds that we planted, mysteriously, right? I mean, somebody please explain this to me. I know biologists can give it a shot, but you still cannot tell me why that little thing, which you can sit in a sack forever, and you stick it in the ground, all of a sudden now it decides, hmm, I think I'll come to life. <laughs> I think I'll become a tree or a plant. Well, that's because the owner is tending to his creation. The world is not spinning by itself and taking care of itself, and therefore we don't need to worry about anybody taking care of us. No, God is taking care of us, and the tithe is intended to remind us that all this stuff comes from somewhere. It's his. So when we get to Leviticus, we're just getting some clarification on something that already exists. Gordon Wyndham in his commentary on Genesis says, In making the Lord his God, speaking of Jacob, and offering tithes, Jacob is imitating the actions of his grandfather, Abraham. He is also, as father of the nation, setting a pattern for all Israel to follow. This pattern that seemed to already be in Jacob's heart was a pattern that was already in Abraham's heart, right? Turn back to Genesis chapter 14, just for a second there. Genesis 14, Abraham is going out to battle, and he's going to win a battle, and when he wins the battle, he's going to end up with a whole bunch of stuff. Verse 17 of chapter 14, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlamor, that's close to saying it right, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Right. And you guys remember what we talked about last week in the Eucharist, bread and wine, symbolism, places all throughout scripture. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So into this scene comes the priest of God. Now the priest is a representative of God. In this scene. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor, owner, landlord of heaven and earth. Interesting that he chose these words in his expression to Abram and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham, God did this. This is this is from God. God. God gave you this, the possessor of heaven and earth. He gave you this victory, Abraham. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, don't ask me to explain to you, why did Abram know to do that? I don't know why he knew to do that. But nowhere in the Bible do you find anybody giving a tenth and God saying, A tenth? I don't know what you were thinking of. You, well, one, you don't need to do that. <laughs> like, I need your money. You, know, you don't ever find God saying that to anyone who gives a tenth. Now, you will find later on, you're going to find when somebody gave less than a tenth, you find God speaks up. So there's a revelation here in the heart of Abraham. That somehow he knew the appropriate response to God showing up with his favor in your life is to honor him with 10% of what he's given you. Jacob turns around and does exactly the same thing. Now, Abraham does this 700 years before Moses gets the law at Mount Sinai. Jacob, about 500 years before. So before anyone wrote this down, already the people of God were honoring God in their giving by giving God 10%. Now, at some point, it's going to get written down into the law, right? Numbers 18.21 would be one of many verses that speaks of this. And I I picked this verse intentionally. It says, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Now, I picked that verse intentionally because some folks have been around church for a while tend to come to this subject of the tithe and they see it associated with the old covenant law. And then they see in the old covenant law it's associated with the Levitical priesthood. Two things that in a way no longer exist. Right? No longer under the Old Covenant law and no longer have a Levitical priesthood. So you have some people standing and say, see so the tithe isn't a New Testament thing and it's not necessary anymore because there is no longer a Levitical priesthood. Okay now remember the tithe already exists before we get to these passages it is a practice in the heart of God's people as a means of honoring the possessor of heaven and earth God simply turns around and says oh you know the tithe you've been given to me use it for the Levites now because I'm going to set up the Levites as one tribe out of the 12 who their whole job is to lead you guys into worship and so I don't want them to be busy doing anything else. I want them to lay their lives down and only be about the worship of Yahweh. And they will lead you guys into that. And so therefore you will support them. So you're going to take the tithe that you've been giving and you're going to give it to them. That, all that did was clarify where it was going. It didn't invent the tithe. Everybody with me on that? It's very important to see that. In this revelation, I'm just going to walk through some of your thoughts here that i highlighted. The revelation of first increase and the source of our provision gets made known through the tithe. Proverbs 3 9 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. This is the nature of the tithe. It is the honoring of God when something comes into my life. Whether, when it was herds, they literally would, would take a, a, a stick and they would parade the herd one at a time, pass. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, the first one was God's. One, that was God's. Two, three, four. That's how they would give to God. They would give 10% of their herds. When increase came into their life, the response of any increase was to immediately turn to the possessor of heaven and earth and say, God, this came from you. And I honor you with 10% of it. Why 10%? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. My question to you, if you're not given 10% is, is where'd you get your number from? And well, I can find my number, right? But if we're doing something different, I'm curious as to where we got our number from. Now, what about Jacob for a moment here? This is God's perspective. God is revealing the tithe in this story. And God chose to put it in his word. God chose to be honored by it as he was through Abraham as well. What about Jacob, right? Jacob in this moment, when he gives his 10%. He pledges his 10%. Uh, he's fleeing for his life. Now, he's been at home. Remember, Jacob, was a, he, was a, he was a conniver. You know, this, this dude, you would not want to have bought a used chariot from him. Um, <laughs> Jacob has figured out a way to cheat his older brother out of his birthright. It's a major deal. This is major thievery has taken place and craftily done. Well, now Esau says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and he's not kidding. I'm, I'm going to kill you. And so here Jacob is running for his life. And, you know, it doesn't appear that Jacob's taken a whole lot of stuff with him. It doesn't appear that he's a real wealthy individual at this point. It would be unusual in this. This was a land of hospitality. You find many laws in the Bible about how to care for strangers. Uh, it would have been unusual for a man to be sleeping out in the open in the middle of nowhere. Now, he's either doing that because... Uh, He can't afford an inn or he's afraid and running for his life and better to sleep in the middle of nowhere than to be in a predictable city where I might be found. There's something going on here, though, where he is sleeping out in the open and he is on a journey. And how is this going to end? Can you imagine? He's left to go to a land he's never been to. Supposedly, there's some relatives there. He doesn't know what kind of reception he'll get there. And he doesn't know how long it'll be before he can return home. And now it's going to be about 20 years before he comes back. Now, the principle of his response, you're the principle of, accompanies Jacob's first personal encounter with God. We have no record that God has in any way revealed himself personally to Jacob until this moment. And Jacob has an encounter with God. And God reveals who he is to Jacob. And remember, Jacob is blown away. He wakes, he comes to his senses, and he realizes God was in this place. Okay, what are you going to do now? In this moment. Well, he turns to honor God. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to set up worship before God. I'm going to be thankful to God. He visited me. The God of the universe visited me. And I'm going to honor him. How is he going to honor him? He's going to honor him by giving him 10% of all that he will have in the future. Now, Jacob's giving is a reflection of eagerness because of his encounter with God. I mean, there's a lot taking place in this passage. He sees these angels going up and down to the place where he is, up into heaven and back down to him again and up into heaven and back down. He gets a revelation of ministering angels. Remember, Jesus clarifies this later and says in in Hebrews, it talks about angels who were sent forth as ministering spirits on behalf of those who would inherit salvation. We get a revelation that there's angels coming and going from heaven for us. Jacob realizes that, God, is is working in my life through these angels. And God goes on and he says, I'm going to bless you, Jacob. I'm going to to bless the land that you're in. I'm going to bless you with offspring. And, And even more than that, my presence is going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. You're going to be fine. Now, Jacob's blown away by the revelation of God's grace in his life. His giving to God is not a reflection of some law that required him to give. Can you find anywhere in here where God says, uh, now you're going to be needed to give me 10% from now on? That doesn't come from God. It comes from the heart of one receiving the grace of God. God has shown up amazingly in his life. Listen, this is very helpful for us. The tithe is... Is not a means of obtaining the grace of God in your life. You don't buy God's favor with the tithe. You actually respond to God's favor with the tithe. Very important that you know that because you get under obligation on teachings on giving, don't you? Like there's some kind of requirement, there's some kind of law, it's like church dues. Oh gosh. It's weekend church dues or do, you know, like it's something we don't really want to do. No, stare at the favor of God that has shown up in our lives in miraculous, amazing ways and see if there doesn't begin to be birth in our hearts. An honoring of God, an amazement at what he's done and a desire to bless him in a way that God has revealed does bless him. And see, if that doesn't change the way in which we give. This this would be similar to what I, I think I said last week. You know, you can, you can stand over people and say, you're going to give, you're going to give, you're going to give 10%. Or you can just say, if I saw God in his glory and I saw his favor on my life and I saw the worth of God, I would give like Jacob gave and like Abraham gave. I would give. And so, therefore, if I'm not giving, it's not just a rule I need to be taught. It's a severe encounter with God and his grace that I'm needing to have. Because that's what inspired Jacob. He was inspired by the grace of God. Ken Hughes says, fellow believers, this is all grace. Jacob, the conniving believer who was outcast and alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery with an unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was fleeing the consequences of his deception. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed upon his soul. So listen, the tithe is not about purchasing God's favor. You and I get the favor of God because of something in God that says, I will be merciful on whom I will be merciful. That's why we get the grace of God in our life. Now, a couple of thoughts before I move on from Jacob. Jacob makes his determination, his pledge, in the light of God's promise. There's nothing tangible in Jacob's life yet. There's no flocks. There's no favor from people. There's no crops growing. He's not a wealthy man. God has simply made a promise to him. I'm going to do this in your life. And his response is, I'm going to honor you with 10% of all of it. He has no idea how much all of it's going to be. Is it going to be just enough to get by? Is it going to be too much for you to even account for? He doesn't know. But the principle is the same. This is very helpful. The principle of honoring God through 10% of what he gives to us is the same whether you have just enough to survive or you have so much you don't even know how much you have. It's still the same. We honor God from the attitude of our heart. The last thing is... uh, the reality of Jacob's life is one day he's not tithing, and the next day he is. Now this is a radical thought, because some of us who have had a struggle, perhaps, with moving into the realm of, of giving God 10 we, percent, we've convinced ourselves somehow that we just can't do this. We can't do it. See do you know what you're saying? Ten percent. Do you have any idea in modern times how much money you're talking about? Like, like this is an impossible thing. Here, The reality is there was one moment where Jacob was not tithing, and then there was a moment right after that where he was. And that can be true for every one of us. A revelation from God and a step of faith and obedience. And you're there. It's not as mysterious and as challenging as we think. All right, from the first book of the Old Testament to the last, turn to Malachi. You find tithing being discussed, not in every book of the Old Testament by any means, but you find it being discussed significantly throughout. And it's interesting that it is in the very first book of the Old Testament. It is in the very last as well. Malachi chapter 3, we find ourselves... 5th century B.C., after the Babylonian exile and the people of God have returned to Jerusalem. And they begin to go about their normal lives now. So they're not in exile. They're not away from the temple anymore. They're back in the temple. They're offering offerings. They're bringing uh, sheep and offerings to God through the temple system. Things are beginning to return to normal in their lives. And God sends Malachi the prophet. And in verse 6, Malachi comes and says this. For I, the Lord... Do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. hope that's not a confusing thought for you. It's like God's trying to explain to them why he hasn't annihilated them. You guys have continued to be knuckleheads. And the only reason why you're still breathing is because I haven't changed. I'm still as merciful today as I was when I showed up in Abraham's life and said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, not because you're cool or got it together, but because I'm merciful. Watch. And so, because I don't change, God doesn't get to the point where He says, you know what, woke up this morning and the mercy tank is empty, it's <laughs> over. And no more. I have no more mercy for anyone now. That could have been their situation, but it's not. God says, so. therefore, this is why you guys are still breathing, because I don't change. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, what do you mean? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when God responds this way to this situation, these guys have returned to... Patterns of worship, but they are not bringing the tithe to God. Some maybe are bringing nothing, some are bringing something, but it's not a tithe. And so we get a revelation of how does God feel about that? How does God respond to that? I think too many of us have never looked to see. How does God feel about that? We've just sort of assumed, I'm not dead, He didn't kill me so i mean i guess he's i guess he's all right with that right now he's only okay because he's merciful but he's not okay he's affected and you can tell by his response he's bringing news of that effect to them right so here's a revelation of the will and the word of god first tithing was an understood expectation for god's people god fully expected that they understood That they were to honor the possessor of heaven and earth by tithing to him. God's not assuming he needs to show up with a new idea. He's assuming everybody knows this. Abraham knew. Jacob knew. I wrote it down for you. So it's pretty clear. Secondly, to not tithe was to sin against God. That's how God treats this. God's not here for a pep talk. God's not here saying, hey, you know, can I just give you guys a suggestion? You know, it would would be more cool for you in the future if, like, some of y'all would really tithe instead of just bringing a little bit you're bringing. Just a suggestion for you. No, God's showing up with the idea of you are robbing from me. That's big terms. You are stealing from me. What do you mean we're stealing from you? I mean, that's like I've crawled into the temple at night when nobody was looking and stolen stuff. No, no, no. Remember, Leviticus tells us what has always been true from the beginning of creation. The possessor of heaven and earth, he owns it. It's his. The moment the tithe stays in your pocket rather than being given to him, you have taken it from God. And that's how God shows up to these guys and explains. Next, God has the intention to reward us in response to our faith in him. God quickly turns from this chastising correction to tell them, you know, if you trust me with a life that doesn't have 10% in it, I would open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing on your life. And the background is, you got need right now, don't you? That's the background here. Haggai does the same exact thing. You have need in your life right now, don't you? Severe need in your life right now. But you know what? If you give to me the 10% that I have called on you to give, I would pour out so much into your life that it would swallow up your need. This is the blessing and promise of God offered to us. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 again. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. See, God is not just saying, here's what I want you to do. He's saying, I want to bless you. I started this thing in grace, and I'm going to continue it in grace. And I guarantee you, I'm going to be giving you back more than 10% of what you give to me. I'm going to consume the needs in your life with my faithfulness. What a promise from God. It's the best investment you will ever make in your life, right? You live through an economy that's taught you, hey, this, this mutual fund is paying 26% a year, baby. Really? <laughs> How'd it do the last couple of years? Well, God has promised an abundant reward for those who trust Him and honor Him through a tithe. Next, in this passage, we learn something about God's perspective on. Issuing a full challenge. God issues a full challenge in this passage. He says to them, here's how you fix where you're at. Bring me the full tithe. Now listen, I am tempted to go in a different direction than God on this. I am. I can't, but I am. Because then I'm I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, this is probably a lot like us. Some people are given 2%. So people giving three percent of their income is going to God, four percent. And so you know if it's me, I'm saying, "Hey, listen, all you guys that right now, you look back at 2009, you have given three percent, take a step of faith. Start giving four. Start, I mean, just take a step from where you are. take one step, a step of faith. Give four. If you guys who've been with five, give six. Right? That's what I would say. God turns around and says, "Bring it all. Bring the full tithe. Now now please notice this on the receiving end of correction in this passage are not just people who are giving nothing. It's people who are giving something. They're just not giving the right thing. So I, I don't want to be released as I say, Well, you know, I mean I give. I give. Well, God's after those who give too here. He's after them to say, yeah, but, but what you give isn't honoring me. So reconsider what you're giving and give the full tithe. Now, if God says that I'm to do that, guess what? That means I can do it. Do you know how many people wanted to argue with God on that day? Say, God, have you seen my bills? Did you hear the medical reports? Do you, do you know what kind of economic situation we're in right now in Jerusalem, God? Come on. I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? No. See, a tithe and giving it to God, it's significant enough that it makes a statement about God. It makes a statement about what you and I believe about God will be to us in the future. God is going to show up in my life. God is going to meet my needs. See, because when I give back to God, I acknowledge that he's the source of this anyway. It came from him anyway. And more can come from him. So if I give this to God, it's not like, oh, well, I'm just 10% short. No, God's going to show up in my life. And what I'm saying is a big statement about God. Now, listen, does our giving individually make a big statement about God? Does it? Because when I get to the end of the road that I've chosen and I look back, I want my choices in this category of my life to have said, I thought much of God. God was big and he was dependable and he was faithful and I trusted him. That's what my giving reflects. And I want to get to the end of the road there. A road that was challenging and difficult and anxious sometimes and wondering how do you make it. But in all those moments, causing me to call out to God to be faithful in these categories so that he would be exalted. How do I move from where I'm at to here? Listen, listen. uh, uh, Repentance. This is an issue of repentance and correction here. If if this message this morning was a message about choosing a wise road on how you walk out purity in your marriage. And I brought that up. And we had a giving record. How are you doing in that category? And you picked it up. And the giving record said you're faithful to your wife. 97 days out of 100. How many of y'all would be pleased if I said, listen, all you guys who are 97 out of 100, how about just making it 98? You wise would y'all be cool with that? I mean, we're going to reduce the amount of unfaithfulness that your husband's into. Uh, no, repentance would mean, how about zero unfaithfulness? You know, the noble thought, well... You know, when I look at my socializing and how I'm living my life, you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe two, three times a year I might get drunk, you know. All right, well, this morning, let's reconsider that road. And those of you guys who are two or three times a year, it's going to get you, get, get you down to one to two. Okay, hey, if I ever start preaching that way, stand up and say something. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I'm preaching the truth, the peanut gallery is still saying things. But... I'm speaking to those way back there who aren't quite sure. Should he be saying that? Listen, when God gets into our life, God doesn't call us to nominalism ever. When God calls you to repent, he's going to call you to do something that seems like you can't do it. I mean, if you figured out why did you keep doing the wrong thing? Because you feel like you can't stop, right? Then God comes along with a revelation and says, stop. He doesn't mean slow down. It's like, well, God, you don't understand. I mean, I can't stop. No, no, no. You can stop. And so when God says stop being unfaithful to your wife, he doesn't mean do it less. He means stop it immediately. When he shows up in these guys' lives and he says bring the full tithe, he doesn't mean develop a pattern of a full tithe over the next four to five years. He means stop what you're doing now and honor me with the full tithe. Look for a moment at these folks. There's a revelation about their lives that, that needs to, to catch us here. We'll look at the faith and the actions of these people first. These people have grown negligent and unaware. It's like when God shows up and pronounces this to them, that there's a little bit on the hill. Whoa, whoa, what, what are you talking about? Whoa. You know, God doesn't in that moment say, Oh, oh you didn't know you were doing this. Oh, well, then it's not robbery then. and It's not sin. But God doesn't change his tone at all, does he? So, you know, our pleading ignorance doesn't work always. And it doesn't work here. God still sees it. God's perspective remains the same, even though man is trying to act like, well, we didn't notice we were doing that, really. God, what, do mean? what are you talking about robbing you? <laughs> it didn't matter. It was the truth of their condition. Secondly, their negligence reveals something about the, the patterns of their life. You know, I very seriously doubt anybody was was walking to the temple and counting their sheep and getting to the 10th and just saying, boy, this 10 number just bugs the snot out of me. I ain't doing this anymore. I, I doubt that was the case. More likely the scenario was this new opportunity came. This travel adventure became available and it cost a little and There was a need over here that this thing broke, you know, the lamp system went out in the house and had to get some new oil lines run and and just stuff was happening. And slowly, you know, 10% turned to eight and turned to seven and six and sort of down it went. And, you know, there's a revelation here that Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there's an issue here about money reveals something, not just about our checkbook, but about our hearts. Because most of us are managing, especially Americans, we're managing to devote our income to certain things. We do manage to pull that off, don't we? I mean, There's not not many of us who are shutting off our electricity and saying, you know, guys, we're just going to shiver through the winter and read by candlelight because we, you know... Well, um, we are making sure that we spend money on certain things. This one needs to be a non-negotiable because it reflects the issue of the heart. You don't stop giving towards something that has filled your heart. Ken Hughes says, God does not want our money. He wants us. Yet, we cannot give ourselves to him apart from our money. That is true. There's not a one of us who escapes it. Money occupies so many categories of who we are, our status, our future, our security about how things are going to go for us, what we want, our ambitions, our values, our character is so bound up in money that there isn't a Christian walking with God who can somehow have a relationship with God that doesn't involve their money. It will always, always involve our money. A couple other points about these guys. We'll move on. The faith for provision and good life was not connected with God for these guys. Whatever they were using their money on it, they were taking it from God. For them, it had become so important that they would set aside God's revelation in order to pursue it. Well, people pursue what they want to pursue. So suddenly what's coming to their life is something that they thought would produce for them good and benefit and happiness. Listen, whether it's a college education or whether it's the heat staying on, whatever it is, we see good in that. So much so that we devote some aspect of our income to purchasing that because that will bring to us a good life. What a terrible place to be. God, the possessor of heaven and earth, is the source of a good life. Too many people got lots of money and goods and stuff, but they got no love, joy, peace, patience. Amen? God's the source of that. I don't need to make sure that I'm going to have this, or can pay for that, or that new thing here, or I can go to that place, or... Why that god, I have, no I, I i need god that's that's what i'm needing I, need, I i don't want to always turn my attention to the reality that god is where the good stuff is and i honor him that way last thing about these guys in malachi their neglect of this practice has created some kind of cursed condition in their life god says you are under a curse every one of you now, that curse condition is not spelled out clearly, but clearly from what God says throughout the rest of this prophecy is coming to them in the form of God's discipline. Right. Again, this is this isn't uh, achievement that's based in somehow achieving heaven. Right. This is not what we're talking about here. But you can be on your way to heaven and being disciplined by God. Because God loves you. And when your heart begins to go astray, he will bring things into your life to recapture your heart. And if money is the railroad track upon which your heart is running away from God, then part of the curse you're going to experience is God meeting you somewhere on that railroad track and derailing some things in your life. Well, that sounds mean. No, just behind what God does to derail you is a cliff that will destroy you. Does it still mean? It's the goodness and kindness of God. See, the tithe protects me from that day, though, because money never touches me without it first honoring God. It's such a wise thing God's given to us. Listen, some are not experiencing curse so much. God you know, may be God, but it may be the self-curse of letting money have too big of a category in your life. And the curse of anxiety in your life. You start believing your future is based on how much money you have, and you start watching your money, don't you? Whether you can retire, whether you can afford that, whether your dream about buying that's going to be able to happen. well that's all bound up is bound up in God who has your future and is your source. No, you stop giving to God. It's bound up in money now. So money's got to provide that for you. So now you're under the curse of anxiety and fear, greed. You give yourself to this and then you give yourself to that. Have you found that the more you give yourself to you stop wanting anything or you want more? So you start with shaving off 1% so you can spend it over here and you're down to 9%. Guess what? You're going to need to shave off another percent because this thing over here is going to want to take it all. And when it's done taking it all, it's going to want you to go borrow some. That's the nature of greed that's in us. And we feed that when we let our lives get out of control financially. Jealousy and pride comes into our life. When we stop honoring God as the source, well, guess who becomes the source in that moment? Me. I'm the source. You want to know why I'm doing so well? You want to know why my business is so successful? Because I work my butt off. That's why. I'm a hard worker. You ask anybody, they will tell you that. That's why we're doing so well. Or, you know, maybe you're not that obnoxious in your presentation. Maybe you're just kind of looking across the room at somebody who's just, you know, not as well educated as you are. Their station in life is understandable, predictable, because, you know, You've got a master's degree and you've got this and you're well educated. And, you know, so so you, you can begin to see yourself as the source of great benefit in your life. And the moment you do that, pride wells up in your heart. Well, see, if I see that my life comes to me from God. Well, then I don't really have any room for pride, do I? Because the possessor of heaven and earth chose to just bless me. His mercy poured into my life in a certain fashion financially. Doesn't make me proud. And it protects me from jealousy because if you got twice as much as I got, I'm not competing with you. The, the possessor of heaven and earth chose to pour out in your life one way and he chose to pour out in mine a different way. Praise God that you chose to pour out on me at all. Not in comparison to how you did to this person over here. But when you stop seeing God as the source of your life and your income, This is where you get cursed by these things. All right, one last example. Turn to Mark chapter 12. This is a quick one. Mark chapter 12, we encounter another giving scenario. This one involving a widow in the temple, in a location in the temple where there would have been set up large, what looked like upside down trumpets, about 13 of them. And people would come and they would bring various offerings. It was a very public setting. That they brought offerings. You know, some people probably got this idea in the church that the church would bring offerings by setting up offering things and letting everybody come and do this. Well, into this setting, there are people that are very wealthy and they're coming up with wheelbarrows full of stuff and they're dumping stuff. Scattering down inside this trumpet looking bowl and it's like. I mean, you're in the temple, you know, i got a little background noise going on, and all of a sudden you start hearing this shower of metal on metal. Everybody's looking. Whoa. Whoa. That dude is giving, man. Unbelievable. And in that setting comes this little widow who has the smallest two coins of currency known at her time. And she's coming to bring an offering. Verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 41, chapter 12. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, this, this captured the son of God's attention. Right? I mean, can you see Jesus here? He's not casual. He's, ah, pst, pst, get, get, get Peter over here. I mean, he is jazzed about what he just saw. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And it captures the attention of the Son of God. Now, gain God's perspective in this moment. A couple of things revealing God's will and God's word on this. First, God is watching how we give. This Bible intentionally records a moment where Jesus sat at a distance right, from here to that wall back there. I don't know, toothpick in hand? And He just watched one person after another come and give their offering. It might help us to realize He watches me write a check. He watches what's going on inside of me while that is taking place. Whether it's being given grudgingly Or whether it's requiring great faith for me to do this. But yet I'm pleased to do it. And he's watching. Second, God is not thrilled by faithless giving. He doesn't call anybody over when the guy comes in with a wheelbarrow and dumps and dumps and dumps and dumps. Now, 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 listen, that doesn't mean that everybody who was wealthy, who gave, was doing something wrong. But there were some in the mixed. God was not Impressed. Because they gave out of such an abundance. You know, you know, a billionaire walks in here today and says, I just want to bless this church. I'm going to write a check today for a million dollars. Now all of us go, whoa, a million dollars. Did you hear that? This guy's going to write a check for a million dollars. Okay, now if he has 999 million more, he's not hurting. Right. He's a very wealthy individual. He won't even notice. That's like pocket change that he misplaced that, you know, here, kids, you can have that. Yeah, I know it's a million dollars. There's there's some of us who live with such a an abundance in our life. And then yet we give and our giving doesn't require us to ever posture our hearts to have faith. See, the difference between those guys and this guy, this woman, she was putting her life on the line by giving. Her future just got into question, didn't it? Because she gave all that she had to live on. Okay, you with me on this next question? How was she going to live tomorrow? Well, by faith. She would trust God, that God would show up in her life. See, the guy with a billion dollars who gives a million, he doesn't need to look to God tomorrow. He can just look to his bank account. Now, listen, that's not wrong. It's not an advertisement for all of us to be as unsuccessful as possible. But it is a reality that if God has blessed us with a great abundance, you still should be trying to figure out, how can I give to God in a way that takes faith for me to do it? Because God is looking for that. For those who give little offerings, your little offering is a big deal to God. Some of you feel like, you know, you know, I didn't really give to the building fund or, you know, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't make hardly anything and I'm a college student and, you know, I just, you know, listen, load your heart up with faith like this woman and come give and you will get God's attention faster than perhaps anybody else in this room. When you take the meagerness of your life and you say, God, though my life be meager. I give who I am and what I have to you in faith because I trust you and I honor you. Her giving made a big statement about God. See, if there was two pathways here. There were some wealthy folks who took the one that didn't challenge them a whole lot and there was a woman who took a path that challenged her very life to do what she did. And it was a path that brought great glory and honor to God. And let's talk for one second about her and then we're going to close. She was a widow. She had No means, strong means by any chance. She had beggarly means of existence. She did not have a man. She did not have provision from one who had a job. And she gives, you ready for this? The amount of money that she gives is one sixty-fourth of a denarius. If you remember, a denarius was a day's wage. That's what she's walking around with in her pocket. One sixty-fourth of a day's wage, and that's what she has to her name. Now, what's what's mind blowing here, and I love how the Bible does these little details, is it's in the form of two coins. See, if it was one coin, we might say, well, you know, she had to give she had to give it. If she's gonna give anything, that's all she could give. But she had two. She could have kept one and given one. But her faith in God was big. She took all she had, two little bitty coins, and gave it to God. Knowing God's going to show up in my life. Some of these people expressed very little faith, even though they were giving something. There was very little faith in their giving. Lastly, the widow's lack was not a cause for not giving. Now, this this is again a point where I probably at moments still and needing to be corrected by the word of God as a pastor because if i saw a woman in this kind of need in her life and she approached me and said i really want to bless a church i want to give this more than likely i would not let her more than likely i would say you know your involvement here is plenty to us thank you we love you let us care for you i would probably say that Jesus doesn't go run over to the coin box and take it back out and give it to her. Say, listen, no, don't do that. So apparently, a lack of affluence and a posture of need is not a reason to not give. As a matter of fact, she's not the only widow in the Bible who gave to God the last of what she had. Remember the widow at Zarephath and the prophet Elijah comes to her? And she's about to eat her last meal with her son and die. And the prophet comes and says, no, take what you have left in your life and give it to God. And her story continues. It goes on. God steps into that moment. So, listen, apparently you can be in dire straits. And giving is still the best thing you could do. Does that make sense to any of us? Only if you read the Bible, huh? It doesn't make sense when you look at your checkbook, and you pay bills, and you go to live your life. But in God's economy, it makes sense. So whether you have an abundance or whether you have very little, God has created this 10% equalizer dynamic. You know, 10% to a person who makes 100 bucks and 10% to a person who makes a $1 It's a meaningful number. For some reason, God has created this. Now let me close with this thought, because this message is entitled Honoring God Through Giving. We honor God with the way in which we give to Him. We hold Him in esteem. We look to Him a certain way. We look at Him as the possessor of heaven and earth and the one who will care for our needs and bless us in the future. That's all wrapped up every time we give anything to God. So we honor Him. Now, if you're able to go back to Malachi, just a couple of books real quick. The correction God brings to the people in this moment, it's about honoring him. The tithe was a means of honoring God. Last passage I'll read to you. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is God speaking to his people. A son honors his father and his servant, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. Notice it's not no food. It's the wrong kind of offering. But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? In other words, God said, bring me the first and the best. Honor me with that. These guys had had said, well, we've got to bring something. Bring that one right there. It's about to die anyway. I mean, it made sense, right? It's going to die, and they're going to kill it in the temple. Go ahead, bring it. God was put off by that. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Far For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations. Listen, what is at stake when we give? It is the honoring of the name of God. Can can you... Can you please get out of this unbiblical idea that the tithe is some kind of a tax from from an old system that nobody's even under anymore? And Why do that? No, no. When I read the tithe in Scripture, I find it is a response to the grace of God pouring into one's life and it honors the possessor of heaven and earth. And God cares about it. See, our giving is about our honoring Matt, go ahead and come we're going to close Look at this last thought from Mark Dever. he says perhaps we can reverently ask why god cared so much about whether the sacrifices brought to him were unblemished or not or whether it was ten percent what's going on here in part god was interested in the priorities of the israelites lives He wanted to know whether they were willing to bring God their best. You and I spend our money to acquire best. Spending it on God brings a revelation. He's the best thing we could do with anything in our lives. Now I want to send you away today with with some thoughts, so can you can you write these questions down? There four short questions for you. It's two ways to end a service like this. One is to take an offering, <laughs> and let me tell you, I wrestled with whether or not mm-hmm. I should do that. Now I know that some of you right now are going, "Well, you'd be taking advantage of people's emotions." Can I just tell you, when you take your 10% and you spend it on something else, that thing took advantage of your emotions. And you took from God because you were afraid that you had to have that, or your life wouldn't be good if you couldn't wear that or go there. Right? Was that an emotional decision on your part? Yes, a very biblically uninformed emotional decision. I at least am influencing you with a Bible. So if you were to give right now, It would be because you just listened to the word of God for the last hour. But I'm not going to take an offering. However, you are free to give an offering if you like. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I do mean that. Some of you may feel like, I need to do something right now. Let me just say this to everybody. Everybody needs to do something right now the best thing I can help you to do in that is to make sure you pick up your giving report and look at it and ask God God does this honor you? You've gotten to the end of your path of 2009 did you choose a path that honored God in your giving? You sit down with God arm with the Bible and find out here's your four questions one are you giving am I giving to God financially the substitution of time and resources and that that, that's not the same giving to God secondly where did you get your approach I'll tell you two bad places to get your approach. One is just keep doing what you've always done. Because you have to ask the question, well, where did I get that idea? I don't know. I just started, you know, if I heard something that was going on at church that I liked, I'd throw some money at it. If there was a special need or a missions thing or something really worthy, then I'd write a big check. Uh, where would where, you come up with that pattern? It's not a biblical one. The other thing that you don't want to do as a starting place is never ask this question. Never ask, how should I give? Does the Bible reveal anything to me that helps me to know, what do I do in this category of my life? If you never ask that question, you don't have a starting place. So where would you get your approach? Third, have you been tithing? Tithing doesn't mean giving. It means giving a tenth of all that God has brought into your life. The last question is, does your giving take faith? And does it make a big deal about God? how you trust him. All right, that's your homework for you and God. Let's stand up together. I first thank you personally for this audience, Lord, this church. Lord, I know that everybody doesn't feel comfortable with the message that was just preached. But God, I thank you that this church is so inviting of your word. Lord, I never feel awkward to preach on things like this. Lord, that is a tribute of your work in these folks gathered here this morning that they will work through this and they will be eager to receive from you so God, I thank you for that God, I thank you that you are the possessor of heaven and earth you are the source of all that we are and all that we have in our lives And God, you have brought it into our lives, not because we have deserved it, but because you have mercy on whom you choose to have mercy. God, I thank you that some here, God, who give abundantly, full of faith, have been met by your mercy. And Lord, actually, some here who have not walked in faith in this area have still tasted your mercy I'm thankful for that in so many categories of my life. But God, what I want is I want to get to the end of the path on that final day. And I want to remember that two paths diverged into the woods. God, and I took the one that would bring you the most glory in my life choose the one that looked the easiest nor the one that furthered my cause I chose the one that would bring you glory and it has made all the difference so Lord help us as we look at our path in 2009 to listen for your voice And choose wisely. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.